Hello and welcome to the Resilience by Design podcast. The Resilience by Design Lab at Royal Roads University, led by Dr. Robin Cox, aims to advance leadership in disaster risk reduction and climate action. Royal Roads University and the RBD Lab sit on the unceded territories of the Kosapsim and Lekwungen ancestors and families. At the Resilience by Design Lab, we work alongside youth and adults as changemakers and leaders to imagine new possibilities for climate action. This podcast is one of many ways to tell the stories of the inspiring changemakers and communities that we work with. My name is Ozzy Lang, and I have the pleasure of hearing and sharing these stories with you. On this episode, I am joined again by Stephanie Wood, a reporter from the Narwhal, to discuss the importance of building strong reciprocal relationships with the communities behind each climate story. Thank you again for joining me, Stephanie. I am happy to have you back on the podcast to talk a little bit more in depth about how to tell climate stories and the importance of telling these stories with Indigenous communities. Thank you so much. I feel very privileged to have you make more space for me. (laughs) You mentioned the uniqueness of the narwhal being longer stories. And to me, it sounds like you're creating a community with the people that you're really telling the story um, through. Yeah, it's a real mixed bag. It's always a different experience, but it just means it does mean a lot of communication. We do have a really strong community that we're really lucky to have. We have people who are constantly coming back to us with stories. We have community members we've never met before coming to us with stories because they saw something we published that they resonated with. And a lot of the people that we speak to, we do keep up with. We check in on and they check in on us. And when that happens, that's really incredible. A lot of it is clear communication that I really had to learn as a journalist. I was having a good conversation with my editor about this, where it's often this prized thing in journalism to not have to publish any corrections. But we were actually saying that that's, it's a little bit silly to pretend that we're perfect and we're always going to write something perfectly the first time. No, (laughs) we're we're just people doing our best job, but we're not going to do it perfectly every time. And we were saying how we actually really embrace when the person feels like they can come back to us and tell us, oh, actually that's misleading or something like that. To me, I think there's actually much better than them just being like, oh, well, I'm done with the narwhal and never talking to us again. Right. And then we publish that correction and we show that we're willing to make changes where things are wrong. The communication continues even after the publication. As I was reading a lot of your stories, I noticed that Indigenous communities are often at the center of them. Did this inspiration come from exploring your own community? I definitely think it was also something I started to pick up on as I read more news, how Indigenous people were often either left out completely from stories or the roles that they played in those stories. They were the people who are always saying no or being difficult or getting in the way or causing problems. Or you saw some of these stereotypes play out or yeah, or just completely ignored (laughs) or full on racist treatment. Like these were things that I really didn't notice until I started to pay more attention to media. And especially when conversations about climate change come about, that's when you would see government or industry or science kind of being prioritized as the real knowledge and then indigenous knowledge was often treated as this secondary thing to be taken less seriously basically 
And that was just a dynamic I started to notice play out and was obviously was hurtful to see that playing out all the time. And I think I didn't even realize just how much of a problem it was until I actually started to get involved in journalism as well. And so in telling stories about climate change at the Narwhal, talking to Indigenous peoples is so important because on the one hand, Indigenous peoples are the most impacted in terms of ways of life, like hunting and fishing, and also literally just territories have more industry on them. Blueberry um, River First Nations, the prime example where the territory has just been decimated by fracking and other industry. And that has just gotten in the way of practicing culture and learning languages and all these things that are so connected with the land has been destructed hand in hand as the land is destructed and after the land was stolen. And so just trying to bring out all these complex connections is something that's very important to us. And also Indigenous peoples are at the forefront of pursuing solutions to all of these problems, to finding ways to sustainably harvest and clean energy like wind and solar and in big, bold policy ideas of how policy needs to change to face the climate crisis. It's kind of impossible to report on climate change without putting Indigenous peoples at the center of that, who have this close, intimate knowledge of what's happening to their territory. So as for being Indigenous myself, I'm still not an expert in all these other First Nations and peoples that I speak to, right? Territories I don't know and cultures I don't know. Every time I reach out to someone, I don't know your territory. I don't know your culture. I don't know the families and the leaders in your community. And I'm learning from scratch and being really upfront about that. And then the other thing that we talked about in our last episode too, once again, that I spoke to earlier is also the fact that Indigenous peoples have been often misconstrued and basically blocked all over by the media. And so trying to build a relationship working within a structure that has often caused harm to communities can be really challenging too. The Narwhal did a really good story on Ferry Creek recently and talking about adding complexity into the situation. There is Indigenous voices on both sides, on the industry side and on the the stopping of cutting as well. And I think that that's really important to bring into light because Indigenous peoples have, in one sense, been just ignored. And then there is another sense where people are using them as this like hero. Like Indigenous people Mm. are this hero of environmentalism. And I think both of those take away the complexity and the understanding. It's like we were talking about in our last episode too, about people and communities being complex, right? And I was talking about this with Candace Callison, who's on the board with the Narwhal. She was talking about this exact issue. And she was just saying, there's no other community, there's no other nation that you would expect to have one single monolithic opinion on what's the right way forward to do with climate change or anything else to do with the community. You would never expect that from Vancouver or British Columbia or Canada that everybody agrees. We know that's not how it works. But for some reason with First Nations, it's if everyone doesn't have the exact same opinion on the right way forward, that's used to discredit the nation. Oh, well, okay, they can't handle this issue, so we'll take over. And especially when you see issues to do with industry, like forestry or pipelines or anything else like that. There's definitely a a bit of a double standard there as a way to try to discredit or minimize Indigenous governance whenever there's any disagreement on the path forward. When it comes to climate change and industry, there's no easy path forward that everyone could agree on. The way that you've brought Indigenous communities into the story is making it more than just this 
abstract climate issue. It's a human rights issue as well. Yeah, that's something I really try to incorporate is the human rights aspect and also have trying to educate people on the specificity of Indigenous rights, that that also ties into collective rights beyond the individual and inherent treaty and constitutional rights and also rights rooted in Indigenous legal systems from before Canada was established and also the rights of non-human relatives and the rights of future generations and just really decentering even how we understand rights, which is often in a very individualistic sense. And so trying to ground these stories that include Indigenous peoples in their nation's understanding of rights or that person's understanding of rights, and also trying to ground any of those stories in that particular person's legal system, their nation's legal system, their nation's laws that have existed since time immemorial. Trying to ground the stories in the Indigenous knowledge systems, like of those peoples specifically, is something that I do try to do. Yeah, and I, I am thinking of the story that you did of the group that was designated as extinct by the Canadian mm-hmm. government. The, the Sinaitska. They then challenged this idea that the government had by going in and hunting elk. That's just one example of how these Indigenous rights are now being, are challenging the legal system that the colonial governments are, are putting in place. Mm-hmm. Totally. That story was so amazing to write and to speak to the people at the center of it. And from personal conversations, I, I know that several people felt sort of challenged by that story because we the settler society almost holds up the border as like sacred <laughs> and like omniscient and like it's there and it means something. And it can be quite challenging to have that idea deconstructed. And it does tie back into the idea of climate change too, where it's like, yeah, so Indigenous nations, the border means nothing, but also to elk, it means nothing. To salmon, it means nothing. To climate change, it means nothing. To wildfires, it means nothing. And it often just ends up bringing these jurisdictional issues instead of actually helping all the people of that land be able to work together to address those problems. And so there's jurisdictional issues of Washington, BC, Canada, municipalities that can actually just complicate things (laughs) instead of actually just allowing the people of that land to work together and address those things. I was reading the um, BC Climate Adaptation Strategy, and they have a lot in there about working with Indigenous communities. Have you seen the government, especially in BC, working with Indigenous communities more so over the last 10 years? Most people that I speak to, I'll kind of rely on the experts I speak to a little bit more, do say that they do see some change. A lot of people say that they do see change. and trying to think of some examples of that, the province, yeah, a lot of the First Nations I speak to say that the province has assisted them or worked with them on multiple issues, whether it be forest management or flood mitigation, providing funding or help in other ways. Everyone I speak to is basically saying, yeah, there's more help. It's also just still not fast enough. And it's still just not enough. A lot of these projects are supported by short-term one-time funding. They kind of give out some grants And it makes it really hard for First Nations to be able to actually pursue long-term goals when they're working off two-year grants and just trying to meet the expectations of that grant. So it's already hard. It's a lot of paperwork and they have to meet these deliverables. And then after that, if the funding isn't renewed, then the project is basically stopped and stalled and they have to find some other way to pursue it, some other way to get 
to get funding. That's a problem that Blueberry River First Nations brought up in the most recent story is that they got approval for funding to help with the specific caribou herd. And they do all the preliminary foundation work to try to get that done to help with habitat restoration. And then at the end of their funding, BC decides, well, that caribou herd, actually, we don't see it as peak risk anymore. We don't see it as of concern. So we're not going to fund this project anymore. And so then there's two years of foundational work that then meets this wall. And so I know that that's a problem that a lot of communities are dealing with is that so often money or support is handed out on the short-term basis. And really with the amount of damage that has been done, it often is decades long restoration that these communities have in mind, right? I was also speaking to Skeechistan Indian Band in the interior, and they were working on forest rehabilitation after the Elephant Hill fire of 2017. And it's a really special, like, Indigenous-led project where the Skeechistan are really at the center of it and other First Nations in the area. Rather than rebuilding the forest with sort of timber in mind, they're trying to make a really biodiverse forest. It's going to be better at water retention. It's going to fight fires more. But the fire was in 2017. There are some areas that still look blackened and there's no more life left. It's like five years later. Already anyone who's not in the community isn't really paying attention to that fire anymore, right? But it's five years on, they're still at the very beginnings of trying to get things off the ground, trying to do replanting and do planning. And they're planning for a hundred years in the future to be able to ever rebuild that forest to what it was. Often that's just kind of not how planning is taking place with 100 years in the future in mind. There's a disconnect there of what needs to be done and what communities feel like they're receiving. This colonial Western planning cycle is Mm -hmm. a year strategic plan or even the BC government's new climate adaptation plan goes till 2025 and then they reference 2050. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about these Indigenous communities who are thinking 100 years out. There's such a disconnect between the two plans that it makes it difficult to get funding, but it Mm -hmm. makes it difficult to change and adapt to climate disasters and climate emergencies when you're looking in that short term and not thinking about a hundred years down the road. Definitely. I think people are often concerned with once again, wanting that deliverable that they can say in a press release, we did this in this two-year project and then move on. And that's often has some politics behind it. And that often has election cycle behind it. And that's not totally demeaning a lot of the stuff, like once again, that the province does do. They do hand out lots of money and lots of support. And they've supported a lot of big projects. And a lot of people are really thankful for that. But there is that disconnect that you're recognizing as well of just the time scale and the magnitude of what needs to be done. That it's not one small project that's going to address any of these massive issues that we've been talking about. I think that I would just kind of, the only other thing I would do is just reiterate how important it is to center these stories. And I just get so much out of, um, basically, like I mentioned last time, I'm always hoping to empower people right through the stories that I'm sharing. That was always my goal and my hope in coming into this work. And Indigenous people who are at the forefront of experiencing climate change and trying to find solutions It's really especially important to me to empower, to try to empower those people in one tiny way by giving them a way to share their story and be recognized for the work that they're doing. And that's just one tiny way 
right, that they, um, one tiny contribution, I guess. And it also is a contribution to the whole because everyone can learn from those projects. The most successful projects that we cover at the Narwhal, when we're looking at solution stories, are always hand in hand with the first people of that land, wherever it is. And so it's really not a nice to have to work with Indigenous people when it comes to working on the land and combating climate change. It's just an absolutely necessary thing. And so it also means it's absolutely necessary to include them in our stories and in a respectful way. Because like I said multiple times now, so many Indigenous people do feel like media has been used against them and there's a distrust there. The other thing that I was just going to say that I kind of see too is that when we've seen the like the recovery of all these children buried at residential schools and for ages survivors have said that those kids were there and the vast majority of Canada either just didn't really listen, didn't really care, or just fully didn't believe. And it's only once people have to really start taking on ground penetrating radar and use this Western science to prove that this happened, that people are paying attention. And I think that I see parallels when we're talking about climate change, but indigenous people in particular all around the world have been saying for a long time, creeks are drying up, forests are dangerously close to a catastrophic fire or salmon are depleting or ice is melting or people are getting sick from pollution. And that's still often treated as anecdotal if there's not data to back it up. And that really serves nobody. It especially doesn't serve Indigenous people and communities. It doesn't serve anyone to ignore those warnings and that firsthand knowledge and then have climate change impacts reach a climax and result in a disaster. And only then do people believe maybe Indigenous people knew what they were talking about. And once again, there's really big drives being made there. I think most people would say that they're seeing big changes in policy and in culture, but there's still lots more to go. You kind of maybe you're feeling good for a moment and then you see Manitoba's new like Indigenous Relations Minister is apologizing like being a residential school apologist and you're like oh okay <laughs> like you're really hoping that you're making more making more strides and then you see that in this moment someone's making comments like that um, it just makes you realize that there is so much work to do and it's so it's it's very closely tied to conversations around climate change and conversations around basically giving Indigenous people back or just recognizing Indigenous people's right to steward their own lands and make decisions for their own lands. That stewardship has never ended, but has been disrupted by colonial policies. And so that's something that we just really try to center in all of our reporting. And that is really important to me is just really centering those Indigenous voices that have so much firsthand knowledge of what's going on, but are being disproportionately impacted by climate change, but they really haven't been the perpetrators of. Such an interesting thought, this idea that this restoration wasn't stopped, it mm -hmm. continued on, it was just disrupted. And it reminds me of this story where you talked about how introducing Indigenous practices in fishing will actually help to manage in the salmon populations. I really loved that one too, because it was actually just laying out in deep detail fishing techniques used by different First Nations in different areas, whether that means close to the ocean or deeper in the river and actually laying out exactly kind of how genius these systems are and how they can lead to more selective fishing so that you can avoid fishing more endangered populations and focus on stronger populations. And also while fishing can monitor how those populations are doing. Since you're doing it at a smaller scale and a more local scale, you can actually monitor the returns and have that inform how you're fishing rather than how we do things nowadays, which is often fishing, and then realizing later that some of those fish aren't doing well. That was such a that was such a strong example of 
just how indigenous knowledge systems can really make a big difference on the on the landscape. And once again, like we talked about in the last episode, taking this really like local approach, looking at a specific river and how it's doing, and then how that can inform the broader scale of how salmon populations are doing across all our rivers and in our oceans. And I think that that it goes beyond just those fishing systems. This thought that you've brought up several times today is that something catastrophic has to happen for Western systems to look at Indigenous knowledge and say this is actually valid. Why does it have to get that far for Mm -hmm. us to see from a different perspective and Mm -hmm. give attribution to an Indigenous knowledge system that has much more information about the lands that they are on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And wildfires is another perfect example. The First Nations, their forest stewardship being interrupted, cultural burning being interrupted, and not having people out there doing the work of seeing how the land is doing has led to way more devastating, catastrophic fires that are just get out of the control of being, well, just get out of control. <laughs> I think that by more people giving Indigenous people a platform and a voice to share with a broader community, we'll get to a better place in society. Thank you all for listening. If you are interested in learning more about the stories we discussed today, a link to the Narwhal will be included in the podcast description. I hope each of you have a wonderful day.